Before we begin, I want to tell you about a really funny and insightful movie podcast called I Saw What You Did. Every week, Millie DeCherico and Daniel Henderson share a double feature with a different wild theme and explore how our life stories impact the movies that we love. Millie and Danielle discuss cult classics through a feminist lens, have conversations about their film crushes throughout the ages, and provide hilarious hot takes on just about everything. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can follow I Saw What You Did wherever you get your podcasts. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. You're listening to Imaginary Worlds. I'm Eric Malinsky. It was December of 1988. I went to see Mississippi Burning, which is really not a good movie. But anyway... This trailer comes on beforehand. And, you know, this was unusual for the time because usually all those trailers started with in a world where, you know, justice is a game or whatever. And it just had these images just popping on screen with no explanation. There was a militarized Batmobile with, like, flames coming out of the back and shooting missiles from the side. I'm Batman. And Batman is wearing a black rubber suit. Wait till they get a load of me. And the Joker looks like really twisted and grotesque. And, you know, by high school, I mean, I'd stopped reading comic books. So this very unsuper friends looking Batman was a total shock to me. I thought it was something that Tim Burton had come up with. Soon I learned that I'd missed this whole renaissance of comic books where the characters had gotten darker and more complex. So I went to Newbury Comics in Harvard Square and I devoured every bit of information I could until the movie came out. June 1989. But that wasn't just another night for either of us, was it? And so as I was sitting there watching the movie, this one thing seemed kind of off to me. This one character that just was taking up so much screen time, Vicki Vale. And she was on the comics, which is fine, but, I mean, Kim Basinger felt like she had wandered in from a completely different movie. I just gotta know, are we gonna try to love each other? I didn't realize what I was seeing was the beginning of a formula. In superhero movies, there had to be a love interest. And the love interest, at some point, had to fall off a building. Or a bridge or something. And scream before the hero swooped in and saved her. Or doesn't save her, and then that's his cross to bear. Are you all right? Let's not do that again. And after 25 years of superhero movies, this pattern started to become kind of fascinating to me because the writers and directors, 
didn't really seem to care about the love interests. I mean, they were always really badly underwritten. But why were they there? Why did they take up so much time? I put these questions to Car D'Angelo, who used to be a development executive. And now he runs a comic book store in L.A. I developed a lot of superhero and comic book projects for Universal. And a writer named Bob Gale, who was a writer of Back to the Future, among other things, one of the things that he said about comic book movies and superhero movies is that the third act always has to have the choice where the hero who normally chooses other people's interests, he normally puts other people's interests ahead of himself. That's what makes him a hero in the first place, where he's going to decide, am I going to help myself or am I going to help everyone else? Let die the woman you love. Do I save my, my girlfriend? Suffer our little children. Or do I save the populace at large? I mean, this is an ancient formula. You know, think about the first movies ever. A girl is tied to the railroad tracks, the bad guy is twirling his mustache, and then the hero rides it on horseback and saves her in the nick of time. It all came from the same place, and it's, you know, know, the cowboy doesn't really kiss her until the end just to say, hey, I I saved the town. But but the, the love interest is supposed to kind of represent what the hero is allegedly fighting for. That's interesting. I thought about that. That's true. And even in detective stories and film noirs, the girl sort of to some extent represents what's good about this town and the detective is fighting what's bad about the town. Right. And one of the women may be a femme fatale. Right, right. Who, un, who, who lures the hero in, you know, which is more a Catwoman or Selena Kyle. You're the second man who killed me this week. I tried to save you. Mm, it seems like every woman you try to save ends up dead <laughs> or deeply resentful. Maybe you should retire. Women, traditionally, whether it's in literature or in film, if you let them get a little kooky, suddenly they were interesting. And, and Catwoman is slightly crazy, albeit in a really sexy way. But why does she have to go Looney Tunes to finally be free? That is Pilar Alessandra. She also used to be a development executive in Hollywood. Now she teaches screenwriting, and she has clients all over the world. You know, in, in the screenwriting world, when you're dealing with something from scratch, what people like me are trying to talk to writers about is, what's her story? She doesn't exist to support anybody. She exists within her own movie, with her own agenda, and her own strategy of achieving that agenda. Uh, my, my 13-year-old daughter was sort of railing about this today. Her big thing is... These women know what they're in for if they're dating a superhero. Why don't they have some skills? Now, at this point, I actually asked Pilar if we could get her daughter to come in and join us on Skype. Eric, I'm so sorry. She won't come out of her trailer. That's Hollywood speak for she won't come out of her room. She's she's doing the, no, I can't talk. No, no, no. She's pretending she's shy. Eh, We tried. Now, Pilar thinks that the love interests are actually getting more interesting because we are swamped with a glut of superhero movies. You know, like take Iron Man. First movie, Pepper Potts is basically the girl. But three movies later, she's running the company and she saves him in the end. I got you. I got you first. I mean, like, not just emotionally saves him, like physically saves him. The origin story, they exist to be the emotional stakes for the main character, but when you're coming up with a two or a three or a four, you can't ignore 
somebody on screen and just have her be the damsel in distress over and over again. It forces the writer and the producer to use this character in a more active way. But settling down and getting married is just not what superheroes do. And I'm not talking about the reasons the superheroes give, you know, my enemies would go after the people I love, or you can't count on me. I may be called away at a moment's notice to save the world. It's the writers who always want to kill these relationships, especially in the comics where the characters don't age or age backwards. Craig Fernandez is a screenwriter in L.A. Peter Parker will chase Mary Jane for 10 years, and then when they eventually marry the characters because the writers got old enough so that they understood that that's what came next, they felt that the character was destroyed. And then how do you get rid of her? Once you marry her off, how do you get rid of her? Because now she's in the way. They wrote a story in which the devil, uh, Peter Parker, has to make a deal in which to save his aunt, his marriage with Mary Jane gets erased from history. DC Comics did the same thing. The writers were sitting around talking about how Lois Lane's marriage to Superman was boring, And so they decided to reboot the entire DC universe. And now they have Superman dating Wonder Woman, which actually I think is turning out to be pretty interesting. But Craig says any writer who was bored with Lois Lane was lacking imagination. Lois Lane is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. She takes her life into her hands every day. And if you made her, you know, just uh, covering the city beat, She would go up against corrupt politicians, mob bosses, but their inability to make that an interesting character. She's dating an alien, keeping it a secret within a newsroom, what that would do to her brain, not being able to tell the greatest secret in the world. Do you think that she wouldn't sit down with every superhero, know everyone's story? Even Grant Morrison, when he was writing the comic book Animal Man, wrote a storyline that commented on how hard it is to have a love interest. They even play with the trope of his family being murdered. And it has the character hunt down the writer of the comic book and say, why would you do that? Really? Yeah. There's a a story where Animal Man goes to God, where essentially he goes and finds Grant Morrison. And Grant Morrison brings his family back at the end of the story and says, yeah. Does God look like Grant Morrison? Yes. (laughs) It's uh, interesting. There's another interesting theory out there as to why superheroes can't commit. And the first time I ever came across this idea, I was watching the movie Batman Mask of Phantasm, which I know if you don't know the movie, that sounds like a really silly title, but it's actually a really good animated film. So Bruce Wayne has fallen in love with a woman named Andrea. She can hold her own. She has skills, as Pilar's daughter would say. Got a few moves of my own. Miss Hovey's self-defense class for girls. (laughs) And she really understands him. She has a dark past. And at one point, he's standing in front of his parents' grave. And he admits that being in a happy relationship is killing his need to be Batman. It just doesn't hurt so bad anymore. I know I made a promise. But I didn't see this coming. I didn't count on being happy. Please, tell me that it's okay. Maybe they already have. Maybe they sent me. If Bruce is always fighting on behalf of his parents, his dead parents, then he's always their child. 
getting married would be a way of growing up, psychologically replacing them. But running around in a costume and punching bad guys, that's just not what grown-ups do. But that's what these characters are designed to do. Comic books are written for little boys. So, you know, all the characters were created under, with the premise that they're going to read them from 8 to 12. And then at 12, they're going to get an interested in girls and sports and stop reading comics. You know, uh, you're looking up to Clark Kent, and then you are Jimmy Olsen, and then you're Clark Kent, and then you, one day you're Perry White. And you go, oh, fuck. <laughs> what happened? Because when you're yeah. Jimmy Olsen, you should stop reading comics and get a job. But no, now you're Perry White, and you're still reading the same stories. I mean, that's the strange thing, too, is that our, that we are this, this first generation that for some reason never outgrew comics. I mean, it's kind of weird. Every generation did, and then we just didn't. Well, um, the other, there are a couple things that are kind of weird about it. When, uh, you know, if you're reading in the 70s, it's the, sec- it's the first time you get second-generation comic book readers that are now writing them. So the story started bumping up, and then you got people like Frank Miller and Alan Moore that started deconstructing, like, 79 80 81 and then you started getting all the alternative stuff so now we're a generation that saw literature we saw what the medium could do you know at a very early age and we're we kept looking for the comic books to achieve that and you get these little these great moments these great runs of characters where they get it and then a new writer comes on kills off characters goes in a completely different direction. Yeah, you just get perfect moments. That's all you can hope for with any comic book character. You want to hear my perfect moment? It was the 1978 Superman film. And it's a moment I don't think I really appreciated until I watched the film again as an adult. So Margot Kidder as Lois Lane has just met Superman by falling off a building, of course, and screaming until he catches her. Easy, miss. I've got you. You, You've got me? Who's got you? (laughs) But then, he agrees to be interviewed for the Daily Planet. Why are you? I'm sorry? I mean, uh, why are you here? There must be a reason for you to be here. Yes, Hmm? I'm here to fight for truth and justice in the American way. (laughs) You're going to end up fighting every elected official in this country. Sure you don't really mean that, Lois. I don't believe this. Lois? Hmm? I never lie. Um, uh, oh, just how fast do you fly, by the way? Oh, I don't know, really. No, never actually, uh, you know, bothered it. The ad campaign for that film was, You'll Believe a Man Can Fly. And the funny thing is, at this point in the movie, Lois has accepted that a man can fly. What she can't believe is that a man in 1978 still has faith in Congress. And what I love about that moment is it has nothing to do with superheroes, but it has everything to do with her character. And of course, as a kid, I didn't believe that Christopher Reeve was flying, but in that moment, I believe these characters were feeling something, something that was real and scary and exciting, which made me care about them. And that's the only special effect that really matters. So that was going to be it for this week's episode, but there's actually been some late-breaking news in the comic book world. Both DC and Marvel are planning these big crossover comic book events for the summer, and they've been releasing images sort of as a teaser 
One of the first images that Marvel released has uh, Peter Parker, and he's in his Spider-Man uniform, but he's got the mask off, and he's next to Mary Jane. And there's this little redhead girl climbing on his shoulders, and it's their daughter. And then a week later, DC released images for their big crossover event, and one of them has Superman kissing a pregnant Lois Lane. And so there's been all this debate among the fans. Is this going to be the new normal? I mean, is this going to be in canon? Or is it just a glimpse into an alternate universe that will very quickly disappear? Either way, I'm pretty happy. So that actually is it for this week's show. Thank you so much for listening. Special thanks to Jonathan Mitchell, AIR, the Association of Independence and Radio, Pilar Alessandra, Craig Fernandez, and Car D'Angelo. You can like the show on Facebook. I tweet at Emilinski. Uh, leave a comment in iTunes, which would be great. And uh, I haven't mentioned this so far, but on my website, for each episode, I do a different iPhone drawing because I, I sketch people on the subways with my iPhone. And uh, this week, I, I drew Margot Kidder. So um, you can check that out at imaginaryworldspodcast.org. <laughs> 